Father, there's a place, there's a place where sin and shame are powerless. Lord, there's a, there's a place where mercy dwells, a place where grace runs deep and wide. Lord, though we're not fully in that place, I pray that this community of believers in Jesus Christ could mirror that as well as it can be on earth. We thank you that ultimately there is a place where we will dwell, even we dwell partially there now, with your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, giving us life showing us grace and mercy, cleansing us from our sin and our shame. May we, may we reflect that in our daily lives to those around us ever and always. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please be seated. One of the most Famous battles in, in Western history was, it was fought near a village named Agincourt. It's about 175 miles due east of uh, Paris. And uh, there it was uh, King uh, England's uh, King Henry V's expeditionary force. He was made up of a, he had about a thousand knights. He had about 3,000 uh, bowmen and uh, a thousand others who were support uh, structure of some kind. Now, the French, being on their home soil, uh, didn't have to worry about transportation across the channel. They didn't have to worry about uh, supply lines and logistics and so forth and so on. And so the, uh, they mustered an army of about 30,000. She had 30,000 against uh, 5,000 here. The morning of the battle... Uh, we're told that every uh, Englishman uh, bent down and, and kissed the ground because they had the full belief that before the day was out, they would become part of French soil. They had no hope. In their minds, they were, in fact, dead men walking. And many of you are familiar with the story, so I'm not going to go into it. But if you're unaware at all, I would uh, recommend the uh, more poetic uh, version, uh, Shakespeare's Henry V. The victory, now get this and how these things come down to us in history. The victory was so one-sided that the average Frenchman today has never heard of it. They don't even know about it. It was washed from, it's not taught. Uh, they barely know who Henry V was, but every single English child not only knows Henry V in the story of the Battle of Agincourt, but they celebrate it to this day. Now, although the battle was not uh, without controversy, it, it certainly had that. Uh, a number of years ago, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and a few judges of her ilk actually tried him a post-mortem and found him guilty of war crimes. I wonder, I, I do, I always do this, I, I, I have a sort of a dislike for armchair quarter uh, backing. I wonder, 
what she would have uh, said had she been on the fields of Agincourt where the knights sunk up to their knees in mud and where every one of the 30,000 had one intent and that was to kill you. I don't know uh, what she might have said at that point. But what I do know is that there were 18 knights who swore on their lives that they would find Henry, fix Henry, and destroy Henry. Now the interesting thing is that is from French history, not English. So we know that from French writers that these people had dedicated, sworn on their very lives that this is what they were going to do. I... This was one of the most unpredictable uh, victories in all of human history. It almost uh, rises, but nothing can rise to, at least in my estimation, the delaying action of the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae, where one of the most iconic, famous, and well-known quotes uh, in history, which was attributed to King Leonidas, Malon Labe, Now, you may never have heard it that way, but if you know anything about the uh, battle around uh, Gonzales, you may have heard it another way. Come and take it. (laughs) Yet in in the Bible, we find a story that's even more unlikely than the battle at Agincourt. It's a story of Jehoshaphat. Uh, I have to be honest, even though I've read the Bible any number of times, I mean like, when I was in seminary, I had to you had to read it every year, the whole the whole the whole thing. So I was I crammed four years into six, and so I was able to read the Bible uh, six years uh, in a row. Of course, I've read it since then, but never with that vigor and uh, and, and and dedication. I think so. I, I actually didn't know much about the man in terms of detail, and so today is going to be essentially much of his story, a story that perhaps you're familiar with, but but perhaps not. And it's on display for us to take lessons that we can live uh, our lives today. Now, Jehoshaphat was the king over the southern kingdom of Judah, and he reigned the same time that Ahab did. You'll remember Ahab, even if you don't remember Ahab, you'll remember that he was king of Israel in the north, and his wife was a woman by the name of Jezebel. And so you have certainly heard of of her. And Jehoshaphat was one of the few good kings. He was actually someone uh, who sought to follow the Lord and to abolish idolatry. Now one morning, Jehoshaphat, he's, uh, I don't know if he's having tea or coffee or whatever. He probably a few olives and maybe, maybe some grapes sitting there. His intelligence sources came with some alarming uh, news. It says in, in 21 and 2, uh, uh, we're in the Second Chronicles, and I'll be going around. So you can read there if you'd like, or you can just uh, you can follow me because I'll be bouncing around a little bit. But a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are at Hazazan Tamar. Now, Hazazan Tamar was only about 15 miles away on the western shore of the Dead Sea. I mean, these 
this army could be on Jerusalem uh, that very that very day. This was an existential threat. Jehoshaphat's life was threatened. He would most certainly be taken, imprisoned, and or most likely killed in the life of the people in Jerusalem. And therefore, all of uh, Judah would be subject to this army that's coming in. And Judah was unprepared. They didn't know how an army of that size can move Certainly it couldn't happen today, but it did then. They could be there to take him out. What would he do? I mean, what would you do if you found yourself under some sort of existential uh, threat? I can speculate, and I will a little bit, about what he might have done, but I'll tell you what he actually did do. He sought the Lord, and he called the nation to prayer and fasting. That's what he did. He said, nation, they're 15 miles away. They're coming to destroy us. Let's have a prayer meeting. And uh, that's just, that's absolutely striking to me how such a thing uh, could be. He could have panicked and left his uh, people like the leader of Afghanistan did. He could have questioned God. You know, verse uh, chapter 20 And verse 1 says, now it came about after this, after what? I I love these little uh, verses, these little transitions that point back to something. It was after he had done all these reforms. Uh, he He had just instituted reforms to bring the nation back to the Lord. And they weren't. They weren't for political show. You could tell that because this calling for a national uh, prayer and, and fasting demonstrated that Jehoshaphat was sincere. He could have also became angry with God. It would have been easy for him to do that. I mean, what's the deal, God? I mean, I, I taught Israel, and like, hey, I'm a, one of the only ones to have done this. I taught Israel to put away their idols and to follow you. And, and now we're facing an, an annihilation. What's up with that? Now, in 17, this is, this is an interesting point. It does say that he was equipped for war, but being equipped for war and mobilized for war are two entirely different things. He wasn't mobilized, but he could have mobilized. He could have said, that's the first thing I'm going to do. Uh, We're prepared. We we can mobilize our army. Call out the army. But rather than trusting in his army, he publicly admitted, and I get this, he publicly admitted that he was afraid. He publicly acknowledged his lack of strength and he called upon God to help in this crisis. Where in the world did that come from? I mean, when did his ability to call on the Lord become a greater priority than his ability to call on his army? Fortunately, if we find out in the text where this came from, uh, it was from his personal experience. And so what happened? So, like I said, to the north, King Ahab was uh, ruling, and he had won two victories over the Syrians. And so the north was feeling pretty good about things. And they had kind of an uneasy peace with the Syrians for about three years. But the Syrians, as soon as they recovered their manpower and their 
their army and said, okay, let's do this. They went and they took the city of Ramoth-Gilead. Now, that's near, pretty near uh, modern-day uh, Jerash, which is one of uh, Barbara and my favorite places to visit over in Jordan. It's just a spectacularly beautiful uh, area. And at that time, there was peace between Israel and Judah. I'm not saying that Ahab and Jehoshaphat were buddies, but they had a peace between them. And so Ahab sends Jehoshaphat a message, and he said, in the text there, it says, Did you know that Ramoth-Gilead is ours, and yet we have done nothing to take it out of the hands of the king of Syria? Will you go up with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And, and Jehoshaphat, I, I think it's because he was never, he hadn't been battle-tested yet, and that was a big deal for kings of those days. I think he had never proven himself, so he said, yeah, let's, let's do this thing. And so he said, I'm with you, and my people with your people, and my horses with your horses. Now, what follows, uh, to me, is, is inexplicable, it's incredulous, but King Jehoshaphat came to Samaria, and he met with Ahab there. And he said to Ahab, let us ask the prophets to give us the word of the Lord before we go to battle. So Jehoshaphat was interested in what the prophets had to say. Ahab was probably, okay, all right, you know, I need you as my ally in doing this, so let's bring him. So they brought 400 men, and he asked them, shall I go to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And they answered as one voice, Go up, for the Lord will give Ramoth-Gilead to you. (laughs) Now this is the interesting part for me. But Jehoshaphat asks, he asks Ahab, "Is, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord? Is there not here a prophet of the Lord of whom we can ask the Lord's will. In other words, all of these prophets were probably prophets of Baal. Or they they worshipped, you know, the Asheroth or something like that. But there was something about all of them that Jehoshaphat said, there's not a prophet of the Lord among them. And uh, so uh, you can hear, now I want you to hear the, the venom in Ahab's uh, response. But again, he needed Jehoshaphat. So he said this, There is one prophet, his name is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now you rarely see a statement like this in scripture, but I hate him. I hate him. Wow. Jehoshaphat told him, he said this, Let not the king say that. Don't say Ahab, don't say that about a prophet. And uh, let us hear what he has to say. So Ahab sent an officer to get Micaiah, right? And so Micaiah, I don't know what he's doing. He's probably doing whatever prophets uh, did in that day. He, he, He got him, and then the officer said this. All the prophets, all the prophets have spoken good to the king... Uh, I pray you, which doesn't mean the same thing uh, to them as it did to us. In other words, it's more like I adjure you. I'm going to whack you upside the head if you don't do this. 
Let your words be like theirs, and you speak good also. So he comes, right? So Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they're seated together in Samaria. They've got their royal robes on. They're in front of the, they're in front of the palace there receiving you know, all the, uh, the people who would give them advice and so forth. And so Ahab asked Micaiah if they should go to battle. And Micaiah said, go and triumph. They will be given into your hand. And Ahab must have clearly heard the disdain in his voice because he replied this way. This is what he said. How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So I I can only imagine at that point he's looking at Jehoshaphat, talking to Micaiah, saying, see, I'm I'm doing right. I'm, I'm, I'm following the Lord here. So you speak to me the truth, you know. He really needed Jehoshaphat. Then Micaiah said this. Wow, here it comes. I saw all Israel scattered upon the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let every man go back to his own house. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that Micaiah would prophesy no good about me, but only evil? But Micaiah was not finished. Hear thou the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven around him and on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will go and deceive Ahab so that he will go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? So now are not only are the sheep going to be shepherdless, Ahab is dead. Ahab is going to die. One spirit came forth and said, I will go and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all Ahab's prophets. And the Lord said to the spirit, go and deceive him. Now, therefore, the Lord has let all these false prophets deceive you and the Lord has spoken evil against you. Now, you've got to understand, I mean, the tension here is is heavy because Ahab understands what this means. He's been, it's being prophesied that he's going to die. And he became enraged. And he said to his army, take Micaiah, take him to the governor of the city and put him in prison. And don't give him anything but dry bread and water until I come back in peace. Now, you got to get this, right? Micaiah is being hauled off to prison. And he's going to get dry bread and, and water until, until he comes back in peace. And Micaiah, you can see him shouting over his shoulder. If you return it all in peace, then the Lord has not spoken through me. <laughs> is that awesome? In other words, this is a man of courage, of incredible courage. And uh, I had just, Jehoshaphat not been there, he would have died on the spot. Ahab would have took him down right there. But he needed Jehoshaphat. Now what's interesting about this particular case is that Jehoshaphat stayed on course with Ahab. What? What? The 400, you could tell there wasn't a prophet among them. You get the one prophet who's there and he says, don't do it. You're going to die. And Jehoshaphat says, okay. He stayed with Ahab. Off they go across the Jordan River and up the mountains to the east to battle at Ramoth Gilead. Now get this. 
Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, uh, listen, brother, I want you to wear your royal robes. I mean, deck it out. Get up there in a chariot, got the purple and all this going on, and yeah, I'm going to dress like an ordinary soldier. <laughs> uh, I mean, Jehoshaphat's got to be thinking, you know, okay, this is, this is not bode well for me. This is where, remember the 18 knights, you know, who swore death to Henry V? Well, the scripture says that the king of Syria had given word to all his chariot captains, to the exclusion of all others, kill the king. Just get there, find him, fix him, destroy him. That's all there is to it. And, of course, no one saw Ahab. Uh, he wasn't to be seen because he looked like everyone uh, else. But I'll, I'll guarantee you, underneath the everyone else, he had, the good, he had the good stuff. He had the good meal. Yeah. So the battle begins, and as uh, predictable, they saw Jehoshaphat and all his kingly garments. And they all went after him. So they're going after him. It was like, it was like me, I'm, I'm telling you. Uh, so this hurricane that we just had, like it kind of knocked our tent over, and we have like five beehives. Three of them are full of bees, and it was just dominoes. Boom, 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 down they go. And uh, me being the, you know, the, the, <laughs> the heroic type, ha, <laughs> I got in my little suit. It's like 6.30 in the morning because I go out and check them, see you know, how everything went after this thing went through. And they were mad. And it was me against 100,000 bees. And then when I say 100,000, I'm not kidding. There were, they, got, they, were, they were all over the place. And, and my little suit was pretty good, except for what they don't tell you is that when the leather gets wet and you're like holding something tight, those little beggars can get through. So I got ding, ding, you know, that's all right, that's all right. And when I'm turning, you know, and the, and the mesh comes up against your chin or your nose or your lip or whatever, bang, bang, you know, okay. All right, and I'm going, the whole time I'm going, I'm so sorry, girls, I'm so sorry. Because, you know, bees are all female, except for, you know, you got this occasional drone running around. But... They had their homes blown over, and I'm trying to fix them. But then, I had only put my tennis shoes on, and one of them found my ankle. And then, I discovered a little bit later, 13 found my ankle. So I got zapped 18 times. 13 of them, within a 10 seconds, got my ankle. Now, I did not pray. I should have, perhaps. But I went and I stuck my leg in the pool and shook it around so I could get these bees off of me. And that's what it was. This is what Jehoshaphat was facing, except for they weren't angry bees. They were men with swords determined to kill him. And it says that he cried out. Uh, do you think he begged, cried out to the Syrians? I'm not the king you're looking for. <laughs> that's not how it, that is definitely not how it worked back in that day. It doesn't much work that way today, but it definitely didn't work that way. You see a guy in robes, he's done. If you get to him, you kill him. He cried out. It's not stated directly, but it's absolutely clear that he cried out to the Lord. And the Lord answered him, and so the Syrians left him. 
It makes no strategic sense whatsoever. It doesn't make tactical sense. It doesn't make operational sense of any kind. They left him. That's something the Lord did. Now here's where it even gets more interesting. Because Jehoshaphat, who stood out like a neon light on a dark night, the Syrians left him alone but there was a certain soldier, and it reminds me of this uh, poem, I, I, poem I learned when I was a child. Perhaps you learned it too by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I shot an arrow into the air. It fell to earth. I know not where. For so swiftly it flew, the sight could not follow it in its flight. So there's this bowman. He's just a dude, just some guy with a bow. And he aims it up in the air, no target, and he lets the arrow fly, and it strikes King Ahab between the mail and the plate armor. Now, there's only one real place and only a couple of positions that he could be in to make that happen. Because if he was standing there, the mail and the plate are overlapping. He, so he had to have his arm up or something. Anyway, this thing got him, bang, right there. You need to understand that his armor was the best on the field that day. Second only, perhaps, to the king of, of Syria. And the odds of making that shot were minuscule. I mean, it's as if God wanted to send a message then and now that Ahab was to be killed by some no-name, but also there was no randomness to the shot. It went unerringly to its target. It makes me, it makes me think it was perhaps the first smart missile in the, the Bible, uh, aside maybe from David's stone, that might have been guided too. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but as part of the Exacto program, that's not a knife, uh, it's Extreme Accuracy Tasked Ordnance. Boy, they come up with some strange names, don't they? Uh, DARPA did this, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. They have a 50 caliber bullet, right, that maneuvers in flight maneuvers in flight to be clear to be clear it changes direction to follow a target after having been fired from the weapon i mean ahab didn't know it but that randomly guided arrow was as accurate as the fulfillment of micaiah's prophecy ahab died at sunset and the cry went out what cry went out the cry went out, every man to his city and every man to his country. In other words, anywhere but here. Isn't, that's what Micaiah said was to be said. And Jehoshaphat was witness to all of this. He knew that he was surrounded by determined men of war who had already penetrated the men assigned to protect him. I mean, he, he was like me as a chaplain. I mean, if you get to the king, it's like getting to the chaplain in a sense. I mean, if they get that far, hey, it's done. <laughs> it's, it's so out in the desert. One of my chaplain assistants was struggling, breaking down her uh, M16. And I had been a small arms instructor for several years in the army. So I told her, I said, listen, I said, if, if they get to us, we've already lost. So just give that thing to me. <laughs> So what I'm, what I'm saying is Jehoshaphat didn't have a chance and he knew it. He, you have to understand, this is the key. 
he knew he was dead. Like at Agincourt, he was dead men walking, but he cried out to the Lord and they left him. I mean, I mean, seriously, think about it. Could a Syrian distinguish between an Israeli and a Judean accent? I, 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 no, this is something that the Lord did. It was the Lord. And that's why, coming back to where I started, he puts prayer first now. He knew that he could do some things after he had prayed, but he also knew that he couldn't do anything worthwhile before he prayed. Prayer is his strongest weapon. And we don't see it that way because we see the flesh. We don't understand that, the, that there are weapons in the spiritual realm that are there like prayer, like the Word of God. And so Jehoshaphat admitted his fear, called a national prayer meeting, and then prayed in front of everyone how weak he was. He wasn't worried about politics. He wasn't worried about public image. He knew that only God could save him and the people. So as the people were gathered in the temple, the Spirit of God came on one of the prophets. And he encouraged them. He said, don't fear. And he assured them that God would undertake them uh, in, this, in this battle and they wouldn't have to fight at all. And when they heard this, everyone scoffed. Uh, no, that's not what the text said. Everyone, because I think the Jehoshaphat's reforms had hit the mark, they believed, they fell down, and they worshipped, and they sang loud praises. What an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. And then the people get up the next morning and they march out to the battlefield led by the choir. <laughs> led by the choir. I mean, how would you like to be the, the, the choir conductor on that one? Okay, you know, take your little thing, whatever it is that you do, and, 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 and lead the army. And, and going into the battle with a song and a prayer... Um, it reminded me of, because I'm a Tolkien fan, when Aragorn, um, Elisar, okay, he went to the doors. Some of you will get this. Some of you uh, won't have uh, that clear an idea of what I'm talking about, but I hope the point will be well made. To the men of uh, Dunharrow, who having sworn an oath to Isildur to help fight the armies of Sauron, they fled. And so Isildur cursed them. And so Aragorn was giving them a chance to redeem themselves and finally find peace because they were in a kind of a netherworld sort of a thing. And the point was this, your weapons will do you no good here. Your weapons will do you no good in the spiritual realm. I don't care what you have. They won't do anything. Oh, that we could understand that our weapons are not man's weapons. I mean, song, song is a weapon against fear and anxiety and isolation and loneliness. It's a weapon against darkness itself. On the mighty wings of song and prayer, God caused the enemy armies to turn against each other. So all Israel had to do was collect the stuff that was left behind. It took them three days. Took them three days to collect the stuff that was left behind. They had no losses. Now, in conclusion here, I want to give you something to 
walk away with. And it's, it's sobering, I think. Because although Jehoshaphat was a good king, he did a couple of three things that were not so good. He went to battle alongside Ahab, nearly lost his life, right? But he did something worse. And though he never knew the result, he arranged for his son Jehoram, none of you ever heard of these guys, to marry a woman named Athaliah. And who was Athaliah? Athaliah was Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. She was wicked. You want to know how wicked she was? In what could only be described as an attack on the Messiah himself, it was as if Satan went back into time at this moment, at this particular moment, where he could gather all the seed of David in one place and slaughter them all. And that's what she did. She killed the entire line. Now, Jehoshaphat was dead by this time, but she killed them all except for the infant Joash, who Jehoshabeth, who was Jehoram's sister and the wife of Jehoiada. The only time you had a royal Mary, a, a high priest, hid the child. Hid the child. Otherwise, the Messiah would have been cut off. I mean, we know that God wouldn't have allowed that happen, but it came that, it came that close. So what should we take away? Primarily, Jehoshaphat, in order to maintain peace with Israel, bound himself to Israel in war and marriage. Now, this is a tremendous fall. Well-intentioned, though it may be. Why? Same thing with Solomon, oh, by the way. They had different value systems. Unity is found only when you hold common values and uh, beliefs. Period. Period. I mean, this is well known in the military where life and death really are at stake as a matter of employment. In the Air Force, it's integrity first, service before self, excellence in all we do. For the Marines, it's honor, courage, commitment. The Army, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, uh, integrity, personal courage. The Navy, initiative, accountability, integrity, and toughness. You get the point. That's why 2 Corinthians 6.14 reads this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness and what fellowship has light with darkness? There are doctrines that we must hold to be in fellowship, such as the deity of Christ. But we also have core values here at First Colony Bible Chapel. Grace, truth, integrity, and excellence. And for us to pull the load together in doing what God wants us to do on earth now, we must hold these things and be in agreement on them. Just a few other thoughts. There are so many. I, I, I toyed with what I would need to do to make this message too uh, because there are probably nine different things I could pull out of it. But just some other thoughts. Verse 9, chapter 20. Pray to the Lord. If calamity comes upon us, whether plague or famine, we will stand in your presence. We will cry out to you in our distress. When trouble comes, pray. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. So the only time I pray is when trouble comes. Okay. Do you pray when trouble comes? Yeah, you're praying. I mean, that's a start, right? Be courageous in the Lord. 
Do not be afraid or discouraged. Depend on the Lord in, in verse 15. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Verse 20, have faith in the Lord. Listen to me, Judah, and the people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God. Stay faithful to the Lord. Verse 32, so Jehoshaphat followed the ways of his father Asa and did not stray from them. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That would be a good epithet. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And we do that by understanding the truths that he has for us in his word. These stories all have meaning. It would be fun to dig much deeper into Jehoshaphat's story, but guess what? We have other stories that are just as interesting and have lessons for us today. Father, we are grateful, so grateful for who you are, for what you've done in our lives, for these, these stories that are told for our benefit. And Lord, we pray that the people that we truly connect with in community, in deep relationship, from the get-go, we understand what their values are, what their beliefs are, how they line up with ours. There don't have to be a lot of them, but there do have to be some. Otherwise, there will be no concord. The yoke will be off. One will be... Strong the other week, tall, short, whatever it might be, but it will result in an uneven plow. We thank you that you've given us your spirit to have something in our hearts to measure these things. And the word of God that we can read exactly what you want. We praise you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.